Welcome back to An Interest Radio. My name is Mia, and this is the Artistic Hallucination on Photography and the 21st Century Double Bind. Being an artist or a creative today comes with a very particular set of caveats. Some are clearly setbacks, some are clearly benefits, and then there's the sort of gray area in between. But I do think it's safe to say that never before in history have we, humans, had to face these particular issues, and it makes me wonder what the implications of that are and will be in the near and distant future. I'm also really interested in paradoxes, which we'll discuss in today's episode, especially ones involving science and the universe. It seems as though the more time I spend on the planet, the more I realize that everything in the entire universe is paradoxical, and we are essentially living inside of countless Russian dolls. Everything at its core is essentially the same, a part of a paradoxical soup of version and inversion, image and reflection, macrocosm and microcosm. A double bind is a kind of paradox, and as I've been studying Sophie Call this week, spoiler alert, she's the next artist feature on YouTube, Um, This kind of thing was very much in her wheelhouse, so it's fresh on my mind. A double bind is defined as a situation in which a person is confronted with two irreconcilable demands or choice between two undesirable courses of action. By making one choice, you automatically negate the other choice and also the choice you made. An example of this is in the beginning of the book entitled Sophie Call with an introduction by Clemence Chereau. Um, In the opening sentence, a story is told. As a birthday present, a father gives his daughter two pairs of sunglasses, one white and the other red. When he next sees her, noticing that she's wearing the white pair, he says to her, I knew that you didn't like the red ones. Another time, when she has the red ones on, he asks her, don't you like the white ones? On a subsequent occasion, when she appears wearing both pairs of sunglasses on her nose, he says, my child, you're mad. And thus, the double bind. No matter what you do, you're still not doing it right. We could probably safely say that You could replace red and white sunglasses with working to pay your bills or working on your work as an artist. In today's episode, I want to talk or just riff really about some of the double binds we find ourselves in today regarding the state of affairs in the 21st century in general, and especially as artists, and how photography plays a role and how photography itself is a kind of double bind as it relates to our lives now. Some of the sources I've been reading on photography that have contributed to this episode are Failed Images, Photography and Its Counterpractices by Ernst van Alphen. Uh, it's one of my favorite publishers vis-a-vis in Amsterdam. And of course, Susan Sontag's On Photography. I'll have links to resources and books in the description of the podcast, and they will likely be affiliate links. If you're new here, welcome to An Interest Radio. My name is Mia. One day, I hope to have many wonderful people talking on this show with me. But for now, it's just me in my room talking about art and anything related to it. I'm an artist myself, and so I have a very specific um, viewpoint on certain things and have had, I guess, the experience of trying to figure it out in this day and age um, without having any sort of real formal training or or knowing how to do anything, really. (laughs) Um, So that's kind of where I'm coming from here. But these episodes on the podcast are a little more casual than the YouTube channel. They'll take you on a journey and are meant to be gently stirring in terms of ideas or creative juices, but nothing too serious. Check out the YouTube channel at an interest, the website anint.rest. And if you have anything you'd like to say that is podcast related, like ideas, if you'd like to sponsor an episode with your brand or product, follow up thoughts on certain episodes, etc., 
you can send an email to radio at A-N-I-N-T-E dot R-E-S-T. There is also a Patreon now for this channel, for the podcast and for the YouTube channel. And if you would like a downloadable version of this audio episode, you can become a patron, support the channel, and that will be there for you. I will link everything in the description of the podcast, so let's get into it. One of the things that's most unique about living at this time in human history is how ubiquitous images are in our daily lives, and how much awareness we're able to have about things that are not directly in front of us in our own lives. The physical world takes much less precedent in our day-to-day activities than it ever has before in all of history. And so things like sculpture or painting as traditional forms of art making are being subverted into compressed images uh, coming through the feed as opposed to these whole experiences physically. Instagram or TikTok or whatever platform are kind of the end game now. And we are much less plagued, or at least we seem much less plagued, by the fact that many of us in cities don't have very much space at all. And potentially this is because we've replaced the importance of physical space with digital space. Traditional family life has reached a point of near mythological status. And in the words of Susan Sontag, everything today exists to end in a photograph. You could replace photograph with digital image now or the internet, which has even less skin in the physical game. On top of that, we're able to curate our feeds, our phones, customize features, and create preferences to fit what we want to see or not see. Who we'd like to hear from and who we wouldn't. And so there's this dichotomy of being able to have the awareness of absolutely everything, and yet only having awareness of what we'd like to have awareness of. And so we have this feeling like we know the world, but algorithms and curation and customization are all layers of choices, some we can control, some we can't, that determine what, quote unquote, the world means to each of us individually. In a way, this is one of those curious paradoxes in that it's a manifestation in in a more literal way, actually, of what already exists in the laws of physics and quantum physics. Mirror theory, the law of attraction, and all its various other names, whatever you want to call it. Whatever we think about and believe gets reinforced in our own experience. And now on top of that already being an unchangeable law of the universe, the world and what feels like this enormous thing being at our fingertips, our very preferential curated choice and preference-driven fingertips, ultimately makes it even smaller, especially if we continue to think about our keyhole corner of the internet as quote-unquote the world. This provides a very particular illusional context for each of us to be living in, or lack thereof, and is arguably a world without much solidified consensus context at all. Since we each have the power to devise what it is our attention goes to in any given moment, at the same time, we are all in most corners of the world subject to the same events at the same time, like what happened in 2020 because of the globalized economy. Complete paradox. And the implications of this are double blind. Because there's not really a way to opt out at this point. I mean, you buy an electric vehicle to try to save on gas and oil, but there's so many implications on how that vehicle is produced. Um, and that ultimately costs as much as it was saving, right? Or if not more. And so insert any number of situations here um, that are like that in the 21st century. There's really no way around it. And so that's the double bind. There's this term that was coined by Gustave Flaubert in the 1800s called the artistic hallucination. He calls it artistic because unlike physiological hallucinations, it does not produce joy or ecstasy. Instead, it produces quote-unquote terror. Terror, in the sense of the word that he was using it, essentially just means unknown or indefinable, uncategorizable space in which the awareness can linger for a period of time. 
You can think of this space as what we would refer to now as the state of flow, which obviously has much more positive connotations than hallucination and terror, but hey, it was the 1800s. The state of flow or artistic hallucination is when one exists inside that space where only the characters in the play or the film they're writing exist, or where the ideas get flushed out for some creative endeavor or another, and everything else and their surroundings just disappears. When one is completely immersed in a psychological state of creativity, of things that do not yet exist physically and maybe never will. There are examples of physical photographs that represent this idea artistically. Picture an image, black and white, stark contrast, where an object, let's say an ancient Grecian pot, something we are all able to picture immediately, is set against a completely black background, so that it appears as if the vessel is floating in space. This kind of image represents the artistic hallucination visually because it's a projection of an image without any context whatsoever. All else is a vacuum, and one cannot immediately tell if the vessel is in a museum, in a hallway, a collector's home, or back in ancient Greece. It is simply floating in space as an idea or a concept more so than an actual object. But it is deliberate in that it is an ancient Grecian vessel, nothing else, nothing ambiguous in and of itself. And so it becomes possible to think about objects or things um, in different contexts than what they normally would be, right? The point I want to make here is that in a way, we are heading toward or maybe already inside of a reality in which consensus on this reality doesn't really exist in the same way that it always has. And we're living inside of a kind of artistic hallucination, one that we've all been creating collectively for a long time together. Reality as a word and as a concept takes on a very different tone now than it once did. It almost feels like a historical reference or something we used to know. And we find ourselves at the precipice of quote-unquote terror in the 19th century sense of the word, the unknown vacuum of spacelessness, and without any container or context to be able to create within. In other words, it is the proverbial void, and in a way, an ending of the world as we have always known it, but the potential energy for the beginning of a new one. So at this point, I'm going to tie in the video from next week about Sophie Call and talk about her work, Vermeer. I think that's what it's called. It's either called Vermeer or What Do You See? It's kind of unclear in the book, but um, in this work, Call asks, what do you see? Because on March 18th, 1990, it was in the wake of three artworks at the Gardner Museum in Boston being stolen, but the frames were left behind. And so there's these frames of paintings by Vermeer, Flink, and um, Rembrandt on the walls, but with no paintings in them. So what once was a classical work of art is now just a frame on a wall, an empty void, but a controlled one. So Call asks staff members of the museum, and this is the piece, um, to tell her what they saw within these frames. What emerged is largely up for interpretation, but I would argue that the answers that the staff members gave say much about them, about themselves. Um, many people who knew the work recreated its image within the frame, but in memoriam, gave it much more glory than it probably had when it was actually there for them. Some of them remembered things that weren't actually there. Um, some people saw nothing. Some people saw void. Some saw velvet cloth. Other people saw entirely random things that had nothing to do with the original works. Um, but one person says, I see flashes of what's supposed to be there. I see the concert. That's the painting that was stolen. The concert by Vermeer. When I give people a tour, I point and say, here is the concert. But there is nothing there except a frame that represents frustration. If we think about frustration in the sense of this sort of vibrating um, K 
chaotic energy in the void. That's sort of what we're experiencing now. It's sort of like getting ready to birth something big. But at the moment, it just feels like frustration. It feels like labor pains. What I've noticed is that because of this precipice of the unknown, as well as our entire lives and in-game being the internet and all its various branches, creativity kind of abounds in a way it never has before, as it's never been cheaper or easier to find inspiration, to create something digitally. Um, an element of the void is that all possibilities exist as potential energy and can be instantly manifest in imagery. However, on the other side of the coin, as we all know too well, bringing it back down to the earth plane with inflation and the economy making physical products of any kind insanely expensive to source, being an artist, just an artist, has become almost completely inviolable, I think. Artists now are being forced to use their creative abilities to create things like ad campaigns, product designs, graphic designs with a focus on the non-physical. Obviously, to some degree, this has been the case for a very long time. Artists have used their abilities um, for commercial endeavors, for private commissions and things like that. So in, in some ways, it's not new. But I would say that you kind of almost can't not do that now if you don't have any sort of trust fund <laughs> or... Um, or are somebody who has a lot of financial backing from institutions and things like that. Commercialism is something that offers to us a way of life that is slightly less damaging than getting a full-time nine-to-five job and not being able to do our work at all, right? But then it becomes this weird sort of, again, double bind where we're trying to do our work and then we're doing work for others. And sometimes those lines can get crossed and you don't really know where one stops and the other starts anymore. And that's where things get a little sticky. So because of this, ads and products and design is, in general, as far as the online realm goes, are infinitely better. And we're getting more artistic and smart in our advertisements. Um, we're all getting better at merging the worlds of commercialism and art better at marketing essentially, but we're also working harder and giving away precious time in exchange for resources, just enough to be able to live. Now, I would argue that a lot of this isn't necessarily a bad thing because it does provide opportunities to get outside of oneself and engage in society, right? Like I think a lot of artists would probably love to just be able to hole up and work on their, their work. Um, but then, you know, the world would probably be a very different place if we were all just able to do that very easily. I think like it's good that we're kind of forced into these situations where we have to use our skills in different ways. But I do think at this point it's out of balance. It is a really strange predicament to be in because the instruction manual we're all going off of doesn't really apply anymore. Over the spring of last year, I did something rather dubious and I drove on a whim to Las Vegas to be the driver for a well-known artist that was in town from the United Kingdom. The reason being is that I wanted him sort of trapped in my car for a long period of time so that I could ask him a specific questions about his techniques and machinery that he uses uh, for his, his work. And it's something that I had been researching for a long time specifically about him without much luck on the internet. So I thought, great, I'll go to Las Vegas, I'll drive him around and he'll answer all of my questions. It worked out great. I got every answer that I sought and really more without even really having to ask anything at all. He was very open and, you know, just willing to tell me everything. Um, and it was perhaps one of the most brief and fruitful meetings I've ever had in my life. A night at a sort of weird casino bar in Vegas <laughs> and a day driving around in the car served to kind of change my life in a way forever. 
But this was not only because I got the answers that I wanted and because I got the best critique of my life and all of that, but mostly because he was talking to me about the art world and I just kept thinking to myself, that world no longer exists. The art world, the world as we or as he had known it all these years, no longer exists in the same way. And so I walked away, drove away from that experience with clarity on so many things and yet further confusion because the answers that were the answers are no longer viable answers in my opinion and I think the art world as far as the one he was talking about is concerned feels like a dinosaur. This brings me to photography mainly because the artist that I'm talking about was a, is a photographer but um, the subject of the image in general is what I want to talk about because many of the issues that we face today are issues that are and always have been spe specific and unique to photography. The ante has just been continuously raised throughout the years since its inception. Photography has always been inextricably linked to the idea of the real, reality, and truth. This idea of reality, as I said, relies on a consensus of perception that I think is fragile now at best. Thus, it's interesting to see how much weight we place on this idea of reality still and of the image which is supposed to act as a sort of reference point for it. On what's being shown to us as a fragment of quote-unquote the truth because some part of it usually exists in physical form, therefore it is photographable in a traditional sense. Of course, we have to open up an entirely new can of worms with AI, image generation, and things like that. Um, but we're not there yet. We're still just talking about traditional photography here. The photograph itself, as described by Susan Sontag, ends up serving both ends of the same stick, in a sense, or is a double bind because of its reproducible and e easily transferred nature. It both seeks to inform us of a moment of the past or an idea or concept in the present, but it also ends up deadening our senses to that very thing. Seeing a photograph or an image or a video of something horrific shocks us at first, and then something inside of us goes numb to protect us. Each time this happens, we become less and less sensitized, and we become even more despondent to reality. This leads to things like shock factor and cheesy, cheeky works meant to provoke simply to gain attention in a world where attention is leaking out everywhere, which leads to some pretty bad work, and a lot of it. And then on top of the photograph itself, you have the frame. Both the literal and metaphorical versions of the word frame are relevant here. The frame, in my opinion, is the artistry of photography, and it has much more to do with a postmodern direction of consciousness saying, look here now, rather than whatever the subject is. In fact, I think postmodernism is simply a series of frames, and all art and artistry at this point is less of a discovery process and more of a direction of consciousness or attention in a particular direction. Maybe postmodernism is an artistic hallucination. The frame begins with the photograph itself, as the photograph itself is a frame. It's a conscious selection on the part of the photographer. And as a photographer myself, I would argue that this is where much of the craft comes in, in discerning and selecting rather than actually shooting, especially when it comes to digital images. So when people used to think about photography as not really having any artistry within it because the apparatus is what takes the photograph, sure, that might be true, it's a machine that does it, but... But the artistry is in the choosing, right? Because you have a whole roll of film that you took with this apparatus, but you're choosing which photograph to show. Um, and that is where it comes in. So I digress a bit, but then the outside, on the outside of the frame, you have the mat. This is a frame that acts as a sort of intentional space between the frame of the photograph and the literal frame, which comes next. The space is necessary to try and accomplish something akin to the artistic hallucination, which is essentially a disorientation of realistic space and helps to create separation from the surroundings. 
The frame around the mat, around the photograph, serves then as a distinction between the piece of work that we are consciously being directed towards experiencing on that wall at that time and the other pieces of work that we will also experience in a gallery exhibition setting, for example. The wall is then a frame within a room, a room is a frame within a building, a building is a frame within a town, and so forth. Since the 1970s, as pointed out vehemently in Brian O'Darity's Art Forum article in 1976, the space that a work is presented in has every bit as much to do with the work and sometimes even overshadows it as the work itself. This shift has something to do with the idea I presented in the most recent YouTube video about Noguchi, where design is sort of more valued now than fine art in a traditional sense, and how space has become really coveted and desired since I guess in theory we seem to have been running out of it for a while now. Thus, the space is a frame, namely the gallery space, though it's supposed to create a kind of timeless limbo-like eternity of display, plays an ever-increasing important role in how work is experienced and remembered. And perhaps there's something about the gallery space, the white cube, um, as opposed to like the black vacuum in the photograph and the visual reference that I was that I was talking about earlier, similar to the Sophie Call work Vermeer, where it's a controlled frame, it's a controlled vacuum, um, where you're able to see things in a more conceptual way, where when you're remembering a classical painting, you're remembering it a lot more vibrantly than than it actually maybe was when it was there, maybe. The gallery space is meant to be something like that, something to sort of create a glorified version of something um, in the present and in the future in a conceptual way, in an artistic hallucination way. One could also argue that Instagram and individual websites are also a kind of gallery of the 21st century that, like the white cube, has some sort of formal structure to it that applies to every profile, as in the case of Instagram, but is experienced very differently depending on how the artist or individual chooses to direct the consciousness of the viewer. Then there is this added metaphorical element of framing in which each of our individual perceptions, experiences equating to judgments and even prejudices, which we experience the works through, is also a kind of frame. This is sort of where the line starts to curve back into itself again. And this is sort of what I meant about the Russian dolls. Um, and the versions and inversions. I mean, there's something to be connected between all of these things, photography, artistic hallucination, the white cube, framing, um, vacuums, social media, chaos, and the proverbial void, frustration, um, struggle to be born, <laughs> labor pains. Um, yeah, hard really to put words to it um, because it's such a big thing and something that is, that is being experienced viscerally presently. Um, but yeah, it's, there's something connected between all of them, I think. But photography has always been linked to this idea of reality or not because um, of the nature of it. Just because a part of a photograph in the traditional sense is untranscendable from its experience. In other words, there must be at least some part of the subject um, of the traditional photograph that is physically present in front of the camera does not, by any stretch of the imagination, mean that it is true, or that photography is or ever has been an apparatus created to document the ultimate truth, regardless of if this is what many what are called quote-unquote straight photographers claim to have been doing. There's been this sort of uh, split in, in the photography community since photography be, became a thing where there was straight photographers and unstraight photographers, and what that basically meant was there was straight photographers like Henri Cartier-Bruzon and, and people like that, um, Paul Strand, you know, who 
wanted to take photographs as they were, who wanted to see the world as it was, who wanted to depict reality um, or what they they consensed upon was was reality. Um, and then there were unstraight photographers who would do things like staging and stuff like that. And uh, even Alfred Stieglitz was considered an unstraight photographer. I don't know if that's actually the word unstraight, but basically it's the opposite of straight. But yeah, I guess he was a little too artsy, uh, and so he was not considered a straight photographer. But anyway, um, the beauty of the image, especially as it relates to traditional photography, is that you can take absolutely anything and make it seem true, but that doesn't mean it is. I mean, think about Cindy Sherman. It's an illusion, and one that we now depend on in countless ways, and use as if it is objective without question. And it's the basis of our everyday lives now. The paradox here is that any context can be created. And therefore, there is no such thing as an inherent context. Sure, there are inherent puzzle pieces, elements of creation, but these are simply cells of an orga organism that require organization and intention, and they're changing all the time. At this point in history, we can really see in plain sight, if we choose to, that everything, all the possibilities being possible, is nothing. And nothing, having no consensus on reality, makes way for the potential of everything. So where does this lead us? What's the purpose of saying all of this? Well, I don't really know if there is one beyond the noticing and naming of what I have seen in my own relatively short lifetime. I'm in my 30s. Um, but I also think that the inherent strangeness or confusion that many of us are feeling as creative people, and just people at this point, is ubiquitous and something that we're all working on collectively, I think. It's also interesting to think about art as directing consciousness. I think that's how I've always thought about it, but... Putting a name to it, particularly in this episode, has helped me understand what it is that people are doing. How choices of framing, curation, space, and architecture all serve this very end. And what that potentially means on a greater level about the importance of where consciousness is directed in general on a daily basis. That's all I have for you today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Anicious Radio. I'm super glad to be back. Um, and at the moment, I'm doing every other week YouTube video podcasts until I feel like I'm in the groove and I can potentially do more. Um, there's a website where you will find a transcript of this episode as well as um, some references and things like that. It's going to all be linked in the description box. It's A-N-I-N-T-E dot R-E-S-T. And I will see you guys next week for the YouTube video on Sophie Call. Thank you so much for listening. Ciao.